Hello, and welcome to Humans of Magic, the podcast that gets deep and personal with the world's best magic players and personalities. Magic is only the starting point for these interviews. This show is all about exploring their mindset when it comes to life and competition. And welcome to the first episode of 2018. I've got an awesome guest on the show. Brian Gottlieb runs The Game Podcast, one of the finest competitive magic podcasts out there. We sit down to talk about the process of content creation, Brian's childhood, and the many life choices he's made. I had a great time talking to Brian, and I hope that you'll enjoy listening to our conversation. Humans of Magic is available on iTunes and SoundCloud. Please subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss a future episode again. Just open up your podcast app, search for Humans of Magic, and hit the subscribe button. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review and tell a friend. All right, guys, today I am here with Brian Gottlieb. Brian is the co-host of the Game Podcast and the First Strike Podcast, as well as a lawyer in daily life. Brian, how are you doing? Uh, I am doing fantastic, James. Thank you for inviting me to come talk with you today. Uh, since you approached me, I've been excited to, to sit down and have this chat. I, I really like what you do with your cast and kind of you know, getting into some of the personalities behind the game. I think it's a really cool endeavor that you take on. Thank you. And I'm really excited too because I've been a huge fan of the game podcast. You and Jerry are doing some really amazing stuff. I was just thinking that it's definitely one of the podcasts when I talk to my friends about it. Almost universally, every competitive Magic player is listening to the cast. So you guys are doing some amazing work. Yeah, I'm I'm always amazed by the people who you know, come up to me at events and how just how many people are listening now. It feels like our audience just keeps growing and growing. And obviously, you know, we're on Star City now. So I think a lot of new eyeballs got on us that way. You know, we, we picked up some new listeners when we moved to Star City. And we're also just, you know, kind of learning as we go along and learning how to grow a podcast and to cultivate a community around the podcast. And I think all that work that we're putting in is paying dividends as far as expanding our audience. And also it just helps that like Jerry and I both love this project. Like we love doing it. We look forward to recording every week. And I, I hope that shines through uh, in everything we do around the podcast. Oh, it definitely does. Uh, it definitely strikes me as the best of both worlds in the sense that it's a passion project for you guys, but it's also been quote unquote, hugely successful, at least in my mind, just because of how much, people are talking about it. So that's, that's amazing. Yeah, I think it's a huge success as well. I'm, I'm kind of awed by the support we get, you know, be it through Patreon or just people expressing their appreciation. Yeah, in my eyes, it's a huge success too. And I'm incredibly humbled by the success we've had. So I know that the game podcast has been doing quite well. But talking to you before this interview, I know that it was not a straightforward choice for you to get involved. I think you've been involved since July or August last year. Is that right? Uh, that sounds about right. I don't have the, the time frame exactly, but I, I think it's getting close to a year now. We're still, we're still shy of a year, but coming up on it. 
Yeah, so tell me what was going through your mind when Jerry asked you to step in and be the co-host of this show. So I don't I don't know that there was ever a time where I wasn't going to accept. Like obviously I recognized the opportunity and quite frankly if I just had the opportunity to chat with Jerry about magic for an hour and a half every week and no one ever listened to it. I would still sign up for that. So, you know, he's just a a great mind of the game and a friend who I enjoy talking to on a regular basis. So it's nice that we kind of have this excuse to get together and chat every week. But while I knew I was ultimately going to accept the offer when he came to me, there was some trepidation on my part just because, you know, I was taking over. I was stepping into the role of two platinum pros. Andrew Brown and Michael Majors, my predecessors on the game podcast. And I mean, I'm not stupid. I I know that when I stepped onto the game podcast, everyone was like, who? Um, Nobody really knew who I was when I was doing it. And, you know, you can argue rightfully so. I don't have this huge swath of of finishes in magic you know i have a pro tour top 20 and a gp top four i think another pro tour top 50 but not i've never been a platinum pro i've never been a gold pro i've never been a silver pro quite frankly and there's a lot of people around the game who just absolutely had no idea who i was so while i desperately wanted to take the opportunity i was concerned i didn't know how people would react to my presence on the show um i didn't know if they would accept me as a replacement for majors and andrew who are both great hosts so there's definitely some trepidation that i started talking with jerry about it and just being like look how are we going to position this you know i don't know if people are going to accept me do you want to do this where like you know i'm posing as a pro who kind of or like a quasi pro who wants to level up and you're guiding me through it or he's like or or do you want to do, you know, some other kind of structure where I'm interviewing you almost every week and I'm just kind of a host and you're the one spewing the information. And he's like, no, nah, you know a lot about magic. Just talk about magic. Why would you do all this stuff? And I'm like, well, is everyone going to accept me? And he says, yeah, just talk <laughs> like we talk back and forth. Be yourself. Talk about magic. People will understand very quickly um, that you know what you're talking about. And I don't know if I buy that. I don't know if I always know what I'm talking about. Um, but. I will say that he proved to be right. People ultimately accepted me in the role. And, uh, you know, I, I think my fears were totally misplaced. Our community surrounding the podcast is incredibly supportive. Um, you know, I interact with our fans over in the Game Podcast Discord all the time. And basically from day one, it's been like universal support. I can think of maybe two people on the Internet who said mean things about me. And if you only have two people on the Internet saying mean things about you, you're so far ahead of the curve. I mean, the Internet is the meanest place on the planet. So <laughs> two people, I'll, I'll absolutely take it. I, I have no objections to that whatsoever. You, what you just said really resonates with me because I feel like in the magic community, it's almost like your opinion doesn't matter unless you, you're a platinum or silver pro. You're only as good as your finishes, right? That's the common narrative or perception that, that I see. It's a very common theme in the magic world. You're only as good as your last tournament or your last, your last finish or your last season. Is that hard for people like us? I don't know. I don't know. I'm well, no, no, I, I, I totally get what you're saying. Yeah. I would say it's a mixed bag because there is some of that. What you're describing is, you know, look, there's a lot of information presented about magic, an incredible amount of information. There's websites, podcasts, people just voicing their opinions on Twitter. Then you go to Reddit. Then there's a million other sub forums that you could go to. And everyone has a say about magic. 
And quite frankly, a lot of the information is just noise and you need to learn how to filter a lot of it out. And one of the easiest shortcuts we can take as consumers of this media is to just kind of put a threshold that someone has to qualify um, before we're willing to accept their opinions. And the cleanest ones, the easiest ones to default to are things like, you know, pro club status. Are you a platinum pro? Then I'll listen to you. If you're not, well, you know, there's a lot of information. I don't have time for that. So there certainly is some of that. And I would argue to some extent, it's a useful trimming mechanism because there's just too much information. Like in all things now, we're inundated with information. But I do believe that where you're willing to kind of put yourself out there and and face that barrier and work for acceptance and you know kind of kind of let your words prove your knowledge there's opportunities as well and also there's there's this kind of weird subset of magic personalities who while they don't necessarily sit in the forefront of most players minds when you start talking to people who really know the game their names will come up a lot and you know, either they've stepped away a little bit from the game or, you know, they are split between a focus on magic and their career. So they haven't taken that forward facing roles. But for me, someone who I would think of in this role is like Ben Lundquist. I think Ben Lundquist is one of uh, the all time great magic minds and deck builders. And a lot of people now probably don't even think of Ben anymore. But there's this whole host of kind of old school players and theorists and um, deck builders who People who are really in the know, if you bring up their names, they go right away, oh yeah, that guy knows what he's talking about, or that girl knows what she's talking about, definitely listen to everything they have to say. So while there is this kind of elitist structure to where we get our information from, I do think there's these backdoor opportunities to present your information and have it taken seriously. And you've seen a lot of people kind of come up that way as theorists more than players. It's a, it's a harder route, don't get me wrong. Uh, you do have to to prove yourself a little bit. But I, I guess in, in some sense, there's also the fact that you had to prove yourself through results too, which are extremely difficult to get. So I, I don't want to you know belie the accomplishments of the Platinum Pros. Obviously, they had to do an incredible amount to get that credential, to be able to you know have people respect their opinions. I'm just saying there's another plausible, though difficult way to get your voice out there. Yeah, and that's one of those things where the podcast medium, for example, is exceptional at that because just through listening to you and Jerry on the game podcast, I could really get inside your minds and really understand your thought process around deck construction and other things having to do with the game. And that's not easy to do in an article. It's also not easy to do unless you're constantly exposed to that person. So I would imagine that if Ben had his own podcast and it had a certain listenership it would also be extremely extremely valuable for people not saying oh, that yeah. he might want not, I, don't, I don't know if he wants to do that but i'm saying that a podcast would be amazing where it's almost like a running journal of what's going on in his mind you know what i mean right it takes a lot of the filters down and that can be both problematic and super helpful at the same time because it kind of uh, takes off all the checks that you have on yourself and it you don't have any choice but to take chances when you're podcasting because I mean at least for me I never know what my brain's going to put out there uh, I never know what kind of corners I'll back myself into with my proclamations or you know my theories on the metagame that week um, but I need to be able to assert them confidently knowledgeably and it, it really allows me to tap into I guess I would say almost 
an innate sense of the game, I really have to rely on that sometimes um, and be comfortable just putting myself out there and occasionally looking like an idiot too. You don't have the time to kind of edit your thoughts over and over. For me, I know if I'm writing in a magic article, which I haven't done in quite some time, but when I was, it took me forever to write an article. And this is how I write, you know, legal briefs or legal articles. I'm a heavy editor. I'm not comfortable putting words out there until I'm sure they're expressing exactly what I want. So it was hard for me to take that kind of handbrake off and just let my ideas flow forth. Um, But I think you're right that it really lets you get to the essence of the content creator much quicker. You get to know them better. um, You get to understand what they're about and how they think about the game much faster than through the written word. Absolutely. So the podcast has topics that are very strictly magic related. You guys are talking about decks, you know, you're talking for specific formats like standard and modern but you guys, every once in a while, you guys also do general life topics. For example, what it means to be great. That was one of my favorite episodes so far in your in your cast. Being self-aware, how to improve as a magic player, amongst many other topics. So I see your podcast as having magic-related topics and general life topics of these two categories. Which, well, actually, I have two questions. The first question is, how do you and Jerry actually figure out what you want to do this week or how you want to space out strategy talk with these one-off episodes what's the creative process behind that so a lot of it is just kind of timing you know what's going on in the magic world often a lot of weeks the answer to what we're going to talk about just prevent presents itself like oh here's this really interesting modern tournament or there were bands this week or the entire Dom spoiler got leaked ahead of time. And, you know, we have this whole flush of new cards to talk about. The, the, the pacing of the, the kind of magic world really shapes our cast on a week-to-week basis. And it becomes very clear to us anyway, having done it for a little while now, what we should be talking about each week, what people are interested in. When we tend to go a little bit off the rails, do stuff like the greatness episode or, or other, you know, quote unquote, level up episodes that we've done before. It's often when there's a kind of slowdown in the magic world, like standards, a dead format that no one really cares about anymore, or there were no tournaments because it was, I don't know, pre-release weekend or something like that. It just seems like the opportunities just present themselves. Um, and we, we like to seize them with kind of an off the rails topic at that moment. I see. So it's topical generally speaking, and you guys try to find where the gaps can be filled with these uh, non-timely kind of topics, right? Right. And because I think first and foremost, our listenership relies on us to be at the cutting edge of the metagame. That's not to say that we don't get more overwhelming responses to the level up episodes because by far the most resounding response I've ever gotten was to the greatness episode. I've heard from so many people that they really appreciate it. Uh, and it seemed to really connect with a lot of people. But at the same time, I think if we were doing that every week, we'd lose a lot of our credibility. I think the, the number one thing we have to provide to our listeners is an edge at their tournament that weekend. They need to have the level up. They need to know you know, how to get ahead of the metagame, how, what to expect at their local tournament, what to expect at the GP, what to expect at the RPTQ, whatever important tournament they have coming up, it's on us to give them the tools to succeed, first and foremost. And once we've taken care of all that, then we can look to the other topics. So it's almost like a responsibility to the listeners because that's sort of the 
mission of the podcast or the mission statement of the podcast, as it were? I think so. That's how I view it. And I, I think Jerry would feel the same. Look, I, <laughs> there's a lot of times that I would rather do free-flowing pieces, quite honestly. I, I like getting into the psychology of the game and, you know, talking about learning and talking about really just self-improvement outside of just magic. But like I said, I, I just think we have a responsibility and we have to check when we go down those roads. Oh, absolutely. And so that was going to, going to be my second question, which is, which comes easier or more naturally to you? I mean, obviously you're doing an awesome job on the strategy part or the metagame part, but it sounds like from what I'm hearing that this kind of learning or self-improvement thing really drives you as well. And I can definitely hear the rapport that you and Jerry have when you're going through it. It doesn't feel forced or stilted. So it sounds like you're very comfortable with this type of topic as well, right? I am very comfortable with the topic, but I would also say that we often don't sound stilted or forced because we have a great editor. So shout outs to Connor for that. He's the kind of the man behind the scenes making us uh, sound good every week, cleaning up our, our silly mistakes that we make. Um, but you are right. We do have a natural rapport and we're comfortable talking with each other on these topics. And yeah, for me, look, there's like a deficit I have to make up and it will always be there. And I'm appreciative of that deficit. But when it comes to metagaming and being a week ahead of the format, Jerry's the man. I mean, Jerry is like who I learned that stuff from. When I was reading articles, when I was coming up as a competitive player, he was the one shaping my perceptions of metagames and and you know, teaching me how to adapt my call blade deck for the SCG meta at the time. And, you know, so he is certainly always going to have a leg up on me in that regards. And I think kind of by the same token, and this is not, you know, at all a diminishment of what Jerry has done in his life, because I think his accomplishments as a magic player, and not only as a magic play player, quite frankly, but as a person. Jerry, if you've known Jerry for a while, you know he's grown a tremendous amount as a person over the years. Um, so this is not me downplaying any of that, but I do think that my experiential background is wider than his. I've done more things, you know, be it going through law school, um, you know, going, going and bartending all across the country in Las Vegas or, or being a professional poker player for a few years. I've done a bunch of different tasks and I found some success in the academic world and some success in the magic world and some success in the bartending world, as weird as that is. But my background's a little wider. And I'm able to draw on all of that stuff when we're talking life lessons. And I think, you know, we come a lot closer to a point of parody on our life stuff than our metagaming stuff. He's always going to have a leg up on me. Not to say I think I not to say I don't contribute to the discussion. I do certainly think that the two of us working together get to the end of a metagame much more quickly than just either one of us working alone would. But I'm always going to give him the lion's share of the credit. He really refines my ideas. I'll bring very broad ideas to the table when it comes to metagaming and preparing and, and thinking about what decks to play. But Jerry is really good at honing them down to a fine point. And, you know, especially he provides all of his lists to our Patreons every week. Take his list over mine 99% of the time. <laughs> he, he gets to a much cleaner place. He has the hours to put in to really, you know, figure out those last few slots in his deck where a lot of times my decks will be they'll be not quite at that level of refinement yet. Um, not to say there's not potential there, and I have certainly have brought my share of you know, really great format-defining decks to a metagame before, but he does it all the time. 
<laughs> so you got to give you got to give credit where credit's due. Sure. And I, I think you guys both give each other a lot of credit because the thing that strikes me when I listen to you guys discussing certain things about that is that you're always respectful and you guys think differently, but also alike in some ways. And you're never going, you ne I never hear you guys dismiss what someone else has done unless it was just in, in humor. And that is the essence of a great magic partnership where people have, two people have different backgrounds. They're coming from different places. One person might be quote unquote more skilled or have better results, but Jerry is always willing to pick up ideas from everyone and be respectful of those ideas. And so that that's also why I find the podcast so listenable is that it's very much unlike the typical magic discourse where people will just say, this card is garbage or like dismiss ideas outright. I feel like you guys are willing to go down certain paths that I don't usually see. So just wanted to throw that out there. I think I think you guys are doing an awesome job on that. Yeah, I I think that's a great a great observation. It comes from a place of trust. I think we both trust each other a lot. You know, obviously for Jerry to kind of bring me into this podcast that he had already worked so hard to establish and you know, along with Majors and and Andrew, I think he showed a tremendous amount of trust in me, which I am incredibly appreciative of. And obviously, you know, I I trust his opinion on the game I have for years and years and that's that's what's being reflected when we have those kind of back and forth conversations is we don't dismiss each other's ideas really out of hand. We'll we'll give each other time to kind of, you know, come to conclusions and sometimes we'll end up dismissing our own ideas as we talk through them. But there's just so much more value to be gained in an open and receptive discussion than the kind of almost nasty like dismissiveness that a lot of magic players take on in their discourse it, it, it's just strange where we've kind of embraced a little bit of a culture of negativity to kind of shoot stuff down a lot and look you you have to you have to mitigate your flow of information i get it you can't explore every possible idea there's just too much out there but in general if you are able to approach new cards new decks new formats with a more open mind you're just exposing yourself to more possibilities and i i think jerry shares that belief as well and that's why we have that kind of free flow of information. And we don't just throw ideas away out of hand. We give them their due course before we move on to the next topic. Right. So, Brian, I'm going to switch gears slightly. And this is going to be veering away from the content creation stuff, which we can get back to a little bit later. But what I like to do with my guests is I always like to get a sense of who they are starting from the very, very beginning. So I would love to hear in your own words, tell me a little bit about your childhood and where you grew up and anything you want to say about sort of where you came from. I think that's something that I am, I would love to hear about. Sure. I don't know how interesting my childhood is. I guess it's a, it was a little weird. I was, I was born on Long Island um, in New York state and lived there till I was about, I think I was six when we moved to a small town in upstate New York called Richmondville, you've probably never heard of it because nobody has. There is one traffic light and way more cows than people. Um, and I lived in the absolute middle of nowhere. Um, we were, we were in the woods. Um, there was no cable TV at my house. So I didn't have cable TV growing up 
And we were also very poor, very poor. And I'm always hesitant to use that that descriptor because as in my work as a lawyer, I work with impoverished people now. And, you know, I, I see some really horrific poverty. We ate every night and, you know, we always had a roof over our heads and the heat was always on. So we have it better than a lot of people in this country and around the world for sure. Um, so I don't want to overstate things. But at the same time, you know, there was not a lot of money to be had. That's I'll just leave it at that. And I stayed in that town until I graduated high school. It was a weird place to go to high school. Not very culturally diverse. Just a bunch of white people. Um, you know, a lot of poor white people. Some middle class white people. And uh, a very almost uh, sheltered childhood is how I would describe it. Not a lot of exposure to, to bigger things. At what point in your childhood did you realize that you were quote unquote poor? Because I, there's always that realization moment. I mean, no one's, you know, from innocence to actually understanding the realities of the world. Do you remember what was the, the event or events that led you to, to realize that? I, I actually do. And it's kind of a funny story. I remember being very young and watching television with my parents, you know, basic over-the-air television because we didn't have cable, and watching uh, Roseanne. And, you know, if you've ever seen the show Roseanne, which has in recent times, unfortunately, become kind of controversial, but in my, my innocent self, just appreciated it as a show. And a lot of the show is based around their struggles as a very poor family. But their house was like four times the size of mine. And I <laughs> it was just, a sitcom set. Yeah. Right. But I remember just being like, mom, if, if they're so poor, how come their house is, is so much bigger than ours? And I don't remember. I, she answered something to the effect of, well, what do you think we are? Um, and that's what I kind of realized that we also did not have much. Um, but it's funny that it took me, you know, obviously that's not the best representation of wealth it's it's based on nothing it's it's just a tv set like you said um it's kind of like the friends problem right where they work in a coffee shop and have the clearly like ten thousand dollar a month apartment in new york city yeah you know tv doesn't always account for proper distribution of income but that was my aha moment when i realized we didn't have all that much money were there other things going on as well you had mentioned that your family was putting food on the table every night. So, you know, from that perspective, the needs were met. But were there things happening, like, for example, with your friends or with people outside of your family that also made you realize maybe there were certain things that you guys did not have access to? Yeah, I just knew there was a lot I wasn't doing. Like, so many things I wasn't being exposed to. We didn't go on vacations. I I think I only flew maybe once the entire time I was, you know, living under my parents. And that's when my dad's family flew us somewhere. So, it, you know, it wasn't even something born of them. It, it was just like little experiences that I realized at some point I wasn't having access to. And then as I got older and I was in high school, you know, I spent a lot of time with my friends and not at home anymore. And obviously the difference has become very patently obvious at that point. You know, my friends have cars and just their own room and more video games and things like that. So it just becomes clearer as time goes on, I think. Right. And can you tell me a little bit about your parents? Tell me about your, your mom and dad, like who they are and what they're like. Uh, so I get they're fine people is how I describe them. They, 
generally always mean well and we have a fine relationship but they're very very different from me my mom worked in like convenience stores growing up behind the counter and she ended up eventually working for um one of the school systems up here uh as a special ed aide and my father worked behind the counter at a tire shop and kind of just did that for a little while and he doesn't really work much anymore um but they're just kind of i don't i'm not trying to say anything bad about them and this sounds bad i don't mean it that way they're just very simple they don't really look to do a lot or learn a lot they like tv and you know my mom likes gardening and they're good people but they're very different from me and in that they don't really they're not that into learning and they're not into culture or experiences they just kind of want to do their thing i see are you close to them i guess i should ask were you close to them and are you close to them now so i guess i would say i was kind of forced close to them because we lived in the woods and there's a lot of times where I was just like hanging out at home. Um, so they were, you know, around and I was there, but I, I think in terms of like a typical relationship, no, I, I, I'm not really close with them. I don't really talk to them as they'll always just be my parents. You know what I mean? I see people have relationship with their parents that are very more friendship based and, you know, there's a lot of commonality and they share experiences and they do things together and that's just not something my parents and I share. Um, you know, it, it's, it's gotten better as time has gone on because I was also an extremely, extremely difficult kid. I kind of feel bad for them. I wasn't easy to raise. I was in trouble all the time. And I hated school more than anything else. So I didn't want to go to school. And, you know, I didn't make things easy on them. But as, as time's gone on, you know, we still see each other all the time. We go out to dinner. We go out to lunch. Um, so, so things are good, but not super close is how I describe it. Got it. And what kinds of trouble did you get into as a kid? I mean, I guess anything that's, you're able to share on the podcast that is. <laughs> yeah. Let, let me think carefully about that <laughs> before I say anything. Well, like I said, I, I hated school. I hated high school more than anything. Uh, the only thing I loved was football. And so I would generally attend school through football season. And then after that, I'd maybe go like once or twice a week at best. Um, so that was always a point of contention. I partied a lot when I was in high school. I with my friends. Uh, wouldn't come home for long periods of time. So, you know, I, nothing particularly salacious, but stuff that kids who are kind of, you know, general ne'er-do-wells get into that's what i was into sure and why did you not enjoy school or that system that you had to go through so it, it from a very very early age i didn't feel like i was learning anything in school i just it just was not useful for me it wasn't either it wasn't challenging enough or the topics discussed were things i didn't care about or i felt that if it was something I did want to want to learn, I would just teach myself on my own. I didn't feel like I needed the curriculum. And a lot of that is hubris, you know, thinking, you know, there's nothing these people can tell me. And trust me, I have right. dealt I'm with... I'm better than them, that kind of thing. Right. I, ha I have had a lot of that surrounding my personality for a very long time. And it's something that certainly still pops in from time to time that I really dislike about myself. And I, I try and improve and get rid of it. But when I was a teenager, it was unfiltered and just, you know, brutal hubris all the time. 
Um, so, so there was a lot of that that played into my resistance to education. And I just like, you know, I, I have ADD, like a bunch of people who play magic for whatever reason, we seem to default to this game. So it was hard for me to sit still throughout a school day and to have that structure, have that very defined, you know, curriculum and learning pattern. It, it just didn't work for me at all. And it led to me clashing with principals and teachers and all that kind of stuff. But while football season was on, I was a model student. I was there every day and <laughs> you know, showed up just because I wanted, if I didn't go to school, I couldn't practice. So that, that was the one exception. But as soon as football season was over, all bets were off. What position did you play in football? Uh, I was a defensive tackle. Okay. Are you still close to the game? Do you still follow it? or, or No. It? No. I actually, I find it kind of reprehensible, to be honest with you. <laughs> Like something just clicked for me one day where it's like, you know, these young, primarily black men are being exploited to such a huge extent. And granted, they're making a lot of money. But I, I think one theme that I'll probably keep coming back to in the course of this conversation is you get one life to live. And these people are doing irreparable harm to their minds and bodies for the entertainment of others. And I did irreparable harm to my body. I don't even I couldn't even tell you why it's it was high school football, but my my knees are shot and I have back issues all from, you know, just working out too much and, and lifting too much. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I, I think like the the gladiator combative stuff just doesn't do it for me anymore. And I can't tell you specifically what turned me on it. But at some point I was just like, this is not for me. Um, and, and it was like overnight where I watched every single football game and had like direct tv sunday ticket one year and the next year i was just like nope i'm done with this this doesn't do it for me anymore this is a total aside but can you ever imagine this happening for magic like maybe one day you're playing magic online or you're in a tournament and you're just like what am i doing here you just walk out and you never play magic again <laughs> will that ever happen to you <laughs> um wizards is exploiting people no i, I i'm just joking but it, it, no, it, no, it, it yeah but you're but it's just super it's just super fascinating to me that you have this life experience at a young age and you are so different from that. Not to sound cliched, but it does strike me very much as we have the agency to make our own life decisions and decide what we want to do. And we don't have to be trapped into a certain thing. Like you might have been a right. jock in high school, but you don't have to be a jock for your whole life. You know what I mean? Right. And I think that agency sometimes takes time to develop. And I think with a lot of things, it, it's it's not like agency doesn't apply to you as a whole. It applies to each individual thing in, you, in your life. And only at certain points will you have moments where you're like, oh, actually, I have agency over this. One of the things I talk about with magic a lot, people ask me all the time, like, oh, you know, do you ever get burnt out on magic? What do you, what do, you do if you're burnt out on magic? And I'm just like, well, I don't play magic. Isn't that obvious? Like, if I don't want to play magic, why would I keep playing magic? But I do remember a point in time in my life where I would just play more magic when I didn't want to play magic. And in retrospect, that's kind of insane. And I think that's why I, I don't see myself ever leaving the game at this point, because I, I do love it so much. And I've also developed um, some of this agency around the sometimes negative aspects of magic um, that can creep in. And I know when I need to back away from the game, you know, and, and I also think that if there were something driving me to play when I didn't want to play, it would be 
my podcast, my content, I would feel a debt to people that I have to play to be able to present them with relevant information. But I actually don't believe that to be the case. I think I need to stay informed. I think I need to stay thinking about the game. Neither of those things have ever been an issue for me. I I love keeping up with the game. I love thinking about the game in my spare time. I can't see myself ever not wanting to do that. But sometimes the act of playing can be detrimental for me. Either I need to focus on something else in my life or, you know, the, the time's just not there or I just... You know, the weather's nice and I don't want to be in a convention center on a particular weekend. Um, but I think that's okay. I think I can do that and still be able to create good content for people who listen to my podcast. I don't think I can do that and be a platinum pro. And I think there's, you know, this is a lot of the reason why I haven't had those kind of, you know, pro players club accolades is that I, I will back away when I think it's best for me. Mm-hmm. But I'm comfortable with that. I I like the place that magic takes in my life right now and have for a few years now. It's it's been going well. So I I think it'll continue in the future. That's great. And uh, if I may go back to your high school days, tell me what happened after that, because you, you, you were quite a rebel. You didn't like going through the school system. What did you do after graduating from high school? And uh, like, yeah, tell me about that. So uh, I did graduate from high school. I was pretty solidly uh, middle of my class. I think I had like a 78 average or something like that. But I took the SATs and my SATs were like 99th percentile SATs. So I was able to go to a good state school. Um, You know, obviously like most, most elite colleges would not have looked at me given a 79 average and in a high school, but good SAT scores were enough to get me into a very good state school. I went to SUNY Albany and was there for a couple years. And it turns out I also did not like college very much. Well, maybe that's not fair. Okay. College was fine. And I, I appreciated some of the learning opportunities there. However, what I appreciated much more than the learning opportunities were the partying opportunities. Um, and I took full, full advantage of those opportunities, partied just a ton, but thankfully with college, it kind of worked out fine because college was mostly just take this test at the end of the semester. And that's what your entire grade is based on. And so I was able to do fine in college for the most part. I was on Dean's list, just, you know, showing up and taking the test. It it actually worked out much better for me than high school where they expected me to be there every day. So what was going through your mind as you were studying for the SATs and deciding to go to college? Because you must have had to really apply yourself to be 99th percentile. It doesn't just happen. I don't just walk into a building, do the SAT and get 99th percentile. Like you must have thought that getting into college was an important step for you, right? So tell me what was going on in your thought process for that. Uh, I, I didn't prepare. I just I just took the SATs because I thought I was supposed to. And then I w- went to college because I thought I was supposed to. I mean, none of these things were like conscious decisions where I'm like, this is what I want to do. And when I went to college, I had no idea what I was going for. It was just like one of those things where your guidance counselors tell you you have to go to college. I hadn't taken agency of my life choices at that point yet. Mm-hmm. All of my friends were going to college. You know, this is just kind of what you did. So I said, it's time to go to college. And I took the SATs. Right. And to be fair, Brian, 
I know this is about you, but I was exactly the same. I think we're around the same age, so I, I get the Roseanne references and all that. I remember exactly. Good, good. That I'm glad time. those are landing <laughs> and not just flying. You know, I mean, no, totally. Roseanne, Mary with Children, The Simpsons. Right. That that was my era right. as well. So, but yeah, I was exactly the same way. I think uh, throughout high school and in college, I was on autopilot. Just walk me through that. I mean, are you? Are you naturally introverted, extroverted? Like, are you a very social person? Is that why you get involved into the partying scene and all that? I'm just trying to understand. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm trying to understand too, because it's so funny to me looking back now is that I think I've developed into an incredibly introverted person. I don't, I don't go out. I don't go to bars. I don't party. You know, I'm very happy just staying at home with my wife and my dog, but I guess back then I, I did like going out. I, I mean, if I'm being honest, I think I really liked girls. Like that was my main thing is that I, I like being around <laughs> girls and meeting girls. And so, you know, that kind of comes with the social socialization and the drinking and the partying. Um, so that was definitely a huge part of my motivations back then. So I, I don't really know how to answer that question. If you wanted me to answer it now, I would say I, I'm very much an introvert, which also clashes somewhat with the fact that you know, I am doing a podcast and putting myself out there to a bunch of people, but it would still be my answer to that question as of right now. But I guess at some point I was very much the opposite person. I mean, you know, at, at some point I became a bartender, which is like the most extroverted position you can have, right? It's like you're in charge of keeping everyone interacting and happy. Right. You have to constantly be chatting with people and being there, right? Is that what you did is like you you got into bartending as you were in school or after you graduated from school? No, so so my path is essentially I, I go to college, right? And and things are going pretty well. You know, I, I'm I'm making dean's list. I'm not at the top of you know, I don't have a 4 hour average or anything like that, but I'm doing fine. And this is in about 2001. And if you're about my age, I'm sure you also remember 2001 was the time of the poker boom. And all of a sudden, everyone on campus was playing poker all the time. And like everyone else, I, I just started playing poker all the time. Unlike most other people, I was like, huh, I think you could probably learn a lot more about this game and not just be stupid about it. And I wonder what will happen if I put some time into it. So I started learning poker and I started reading about poker and studying poker. And I was on two plus two and on party poker and empire poker, 12, 14 hours a day. Mm -hmm. And I started making a lot of money, like enough money that I couldn't see any more use for education in my life. I was just like, why would I ever do anything else? And you have to keep in mind that this all comes from a lens of having grown up very poor mm -hmm. and and now i'm 19 and i'm i'm making a lot of money for a 19 year old especially one who has never had money in his life who has never seen money and uh things escalated very quickly and i just stopped i, I didn't even drop out of school i just stopped going to classes because i was like whatever i have enough money to pay off these loans it doesn't really matter anymore. <laughs> And I, I just kind of played poker for a few years, um, mostly online, a little bit live. But I started to do really well for myself, and, and that became my job for a while. And I kind of thought it might always be my job going forward. Were you very disciplined about it? Like you had a proper bankroll 
that you managed and you it sounds like you were on the forums and i remember at the time the games could be rather soft if you if you actually knew what you were doing you could be doing quite well for yourself which sounds like you did but did you how did you take care of your finances at that point as you started to get more and more into poker is my question so my bankroll management was good i wouldn't say great it was good in that i always made sure there was enough in reserve to keep me playing my money management was not good. <laughs> Everything that pulled <laughs> off the, the top of my bankroll was spent incredibly quickly. But there was enough to go around. And, you know, like you said, games were soft. So it, it didn't really it didn't really matter. There was enough for both proper bankroll management and, you know, wasteful spending. And I certainly never hit nosebleed stakes. I wasn't at the very top of the poker game, but I was making a comfortable six figure living for a few years. So I, I guess I would say I was I was half disciplined. My bankroll management was pretty good. My money management was horrible. What were some of the craziest things that you you spent money on? Was it oh, like a Lam Lamborghini or something? Or <laughs> no, it wasn't anything that um, my so like we discussed lots of partying and you know buy the sure. whole bar parties have tabs yeah. Right. Buy, uh, buy 10 kegs for a party. But the the dumbest, the dumbest stuff I bought was clothing. I bought so much like Gucci, Armani, just the dumbest shit you could ever <laughs> buy. I don't know if you swear on this cast. I'm sorry if you have to cut that no, out. It's the totally, dumbest stuff. No, you can say anything you want. So Okay. Okay, great. I mean, it, it brings – my face is red right now. I can feel it. It brings me so much shame to think of the money I wasted on this stuff. I, again, implore everyone to please try and understand that I was like a really dumb 19-year-old kid who had never seen money. And I was so into conspicuous consumption that it's, it actually brings me pain to think back on it. It's crazy just how silly I was with that stuff. So – Tons of, of fancy clothes and I bought some nice guitars, some nice computer equipment. Uh, I bought a lot. I was very into like uh, home theater stuff. So I had like very early high definition TVs that were like thousands and thousands of dollars for a TV you'd laugh at now if you saw it. Right. Yeah. Just very temporary, very silly things is, is where the vast majority of my money went to. But it did change your relationship with money and how oh, you yes. view money, right? So yeah. hopefully there was something that you can look back and say, like, maybe I learned something from that somehow. Oh, it, it made a tremendous difference. And, you know, we're kind of like progressing through my life narrative. But we'll get to the point where I take a very high paying job and, you know, watch the people around me falling into some of the same traps I fell into so many years ago and me just being able to sit back and go, uh, I don't think you should really do that right now. <laughs> like, trust me, I know how this story ends. You really don't need that Gucci shirt. You're going to feel very stupid about this in a few years. Yeah. And they say, no, it's different. I really want this Gucci shirt, right? <laughs> you can talk yourself into a lot of stuff if you try hard enough. So how long did this poker thing last for you? So I was, I was going hard for about two years the extracurriculars, the partying, the other stuff, very much caught up with me. Um, you know, I always, I always say I don't think I ever had a, a drug or an alcohol problem, but I definitely had a partying problem. I partied way too much, like seven nights a week. Um, you know, I'd play my hours of poker for the day, and then it was time to party every single day. But 
all that caught up with me. And at the same time, I started to hate playing poker. Just hate it. I, I hated every second I was playing online poker because it gets so mechanical and like dehumanizing at some point. And I see so many people go through it. I've seen so many, so many of my friends go through it. But you know how it is if you're multi-tabling and just all you have to do is just check your boxes. At the end of the day, your bank account should go up um, and you just repeat ad nauseum over and over every day. Same thing. Checking your boxes, clicking your folds, clicking, clicking your raises. And at the end of the day, there's some more money. And it just lost all meaning to me. And I hated, hated playing poker. And so I just stopped. Just stop one and day. Just, just, just stop too much. Got to be too much. Yep. Yeah, people are always like, "Oh, so you did you go bust?" No, I just I just stopped. I didn't want to do it anymore. Then eventually I went bust. I spent all the money I had in reserve from, you know, I was still spending money like I had it coming in when I was playing poker. Right. Um, that only lasts for so long, you know. But it had nothing to do with the games. I just like lost interest and wasn't playing anymore. Yeah, I mean, it can get rather mechanical at some point, right? Yeah, that's why I, f- I felt like I was working at the factory, you know, like I was working at the poker poker factory every day, just clicking my boxes, punching my time card. And and that was it. And I had no joy, no passion for it. It just it just went one day. Had you already dropped out of school at that point or you basically? Yeah. OK, OK. Yep. Yeah, I was already at it. Basically, as soon as I, I remember, I was like I had a test. I don't know what day of the week it was. I, I had a test coming up and like the night before the test, I was in a poker tournament that I started like midday and I was just like, oh, I'll finish this poker tournament. And then at the afterwards, I'll study for this test and go to it. And I ended up winning the tournament for, you know, it was like $40,000 or something like that. And I was just like, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to this test tomorrow. I'm going out to celebrate. And that was it. <laughs> that was just it. I never <laughs> went to another class after that. Yeah, so I, I, that had been about two years at that point once I stopped playing. So what happens after that in the life of Brian Gottlieb? Well, one of the things about partying all the time is that you get to know everyone at all the bars. And by doing that, I was like, well, if I'm not going to play poker, I have to do something. And I seem to like being at the bars quite a bit. So maybe I'll just be a bartender. And one one of the things that came with my conspicuous consumption was that I was a very generous tipper. And so I made a lot of friends in the service industry in my town. Um, and when I kind of came to them and was like, hey, I think I want to start bartending, I found a place pretty quickly and started doing that for a few years. Was it a difficult ramp up process or did you get into it from a skill set perspective fairly easily? It was fairly easy. I mean... There's not a lot to it, right? Like you just learn some drinks and then it's pretty much a done deal. And the rest of it is just socializing. And I always worked at, you know, non-corporate places, at least when I was in Albany. So it was really just partying and drinking and doing shots the whole night and, you know, hoping you were sober enough to count your money at the end of the night. (laughs) (laughs) So it, it, it was was a lot of fun for that era of my life. I really enjoyed it. Got it. So... It sounds like it was a way to continue the social lifestyle that you had without having to rely on poker. You just basically replaced poker with another profession to make a living. Is that right? Right. Right. Yeah, I think that's spot on. Another, you know, non-traditional. I didn't have to wake up early. Um, I worked from usually 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. Those are my hours. And yeah, it just kind of fit with what my lifestyle looked like at that time. And it was the easiest route for me to go down. 
and I, I do think I enjoyed it too at the time. Did anything interesting ever happen as you were working in the bar? Like any, uh, any interesting clients or not clients, but customers or just weird stuff happening or a lot, a lot of weird stuff. I definitely like had a gun flash at me because I didn't make a drink strong enough. That was interesting. Oh, wow. I've, I've had a lot of celebrities come through and, you know, drank with them and they're usually not very interesting for the most part. <laughs> they're just people, right? Yeah, they're they're always letdowns. That's that's been my basic experience with celebrities. I'm trying to think if I have any like just absolute gangbuster stories, but nothing is springing to mind. Just like typical bartender stuff. There were a, a lot of long, long, long nights, a lot of partying. For someone at that age, it was a a very fun environment. Got it. And what happens after that? I mean, after bartending, how long did you did you bartend for? So I'm doing the bartending thing. And at some point I was like, okay, I like this, but I can't do this forever. I was very aware of the fact that, you know, I'm getting older. And one of the things I always said for myself is you can't bartend when you're 30 years old. I made myself promise that I would not bartend at the age of 30 because people in the industry who uh, are around for a long time, once you hit that like 30 year old point, you're a lifer. You're going to be bartending the rest of your life. And I knew I didn't want to do that. Not that there's anything wrong with it if that's what you love. I, I, you know, I have a lot of friends who are still bartenders to this day and that's what they really love doing, but it wasn't for me. So I was like, okay, I have to go back and get my undergraduate degree. So I went back to school while I was still bartending. I was doing both and finished my undergraduate degree. Not really anything too exciting there, just kind of picked up the credits I needed and and moved on and that was the end of it. And then at that point, I had a very special guest come into my bar one night um, who would turn out to be my wife, which kind of changed a lot of the plans that I that I had going forward. I didn't know, I knew I was going to transition away from the bartending game, but I wasn't exactly sure how to do it at that point. So it was a goal of mine, but I hadn't taken any affirmative steps to doing so. Um, and then my wife comes into the bar one night, I meet her and, you know, we hit it off immediately and we're just kind of talking and I'm like, you know, I kind of just want to move to Vegas. What do you think about moving out there? And we'd only known each other at three, like three months at this point. And she was like, yeah, that sounds good. So we moved to Vegas and I, you know, started playing a little poker, which it turns out I still hated, and <laughs> bartending out there. Again, not really knowing what I was doing, but just being like, okay, this is fun for now, and we'll see where it goes. And uh, I bartended on the Strip a little bit, down on Fremont Street. But we went to Vegas at a really bad time. We went in 2007, which was like the peak of the foreclosure crisis. Right. And Vegas was hit hardest by that crisis, maybe, maybe worse than anywhere in the entire country. So the economy was really in shambles. It was not a good time to be in Vegas. So we moved back to the East Coast. And then I was like, you know what? I think I should go to law school. And that's really the extent of the decision-making process there. You just woke up one day and you said, I want to go to law I school. Even tell you. I couldn't even tell you what was going through my head. I think it was something I had like thought about before. I mean, as I, after I have this flash of idea, I explore it a little more. And the thing which really cemented it as the correct approach in my eyes was that law school is very much a meritocracy. 
And basically, I knew if I were to succeed in law school, I was very likely to kind of jumpstart a real career right out right out the gate. Um, you know, there would be opportunities immediately. And I liked that. I didn't want to have to take an entry level job and build up for years and years. So I, I think maybe that more than anything pushed me in the direction of law school. That's a very good observation. You basically looked at what was available for someone in his 30s and thought that was a, a pretty good bet to make, right? Right. I, it just seemed like there was, if I if I did well, there was the potential to kind of catapult a career right away. And uh, I knew there was risk involved. I, I didn't go to a top tier law school. And I, you know, I think a lot of people, this is kind of getting into some law school inside baseball. So again, I'm speaking to a very <laughs> small portion of your No, audience. it's all good. It's all good. But a, a lot of people who go to schools a little bit further down the ranking list don't really know what they're getting into. But job prospects when you're not in a really elite law school are not good. They're, they're only good at the very top of the class. And kind of my intention was that if I was not in the top 10% of my law school class after my first year, I would drop out and, and cut my losses at that point and just stop. But things went well. So I was, <laughs> so I was able to continue on through law school. Yeah, absolutely. I have a few friends who are lawyers as well. And uh, it's definitely not the, uh, the glamorous lifestyle. I mean, even for those who have I, people I know who've gone to fairly good schools, it's not, it's not always easy. So I'm not a lawyer myself, but I can, I can somewhat understand where you're coming from. Yeah. And even, you know, even when you find success, which I, I think I, by most metrics did, success can sometimes not, it's, it's not all it's cracked up to be. Let's just, let's just say that. Yeah. I, one thing that you guys mentioned on the game podcast, cause you did talk about it a little bit is that as you, your perception of what practicing law was, or I should say this, when you were in school, I remember you said that you were very engaged and you felt very excited to go to class and learn something. You were there voluntarily on your own. Right. And For the after first time you, in my life. Exactly. And, but as you became a lawyer, maybe you realized that things were not as you had originally perceived it to be. I mean, now, now mind you, you got what you wanted, which was you, you got into a profession that you, you targeted getting into. So that's awesome. But you also mentioned that, as I'm recalling, that it's not exactly up to your expectations, right? Yeah, I, I think that's a good way of putting it. So ultimately, I, I graduate law school at the very top of my class and get a job with a prestigious firm in New York City. And I, ha I have nothing but good things to say about the opportunities there. And the people there were honestly great people, you know, almost to a person, everyone I encountered was a really intelligent, bright, fantastic person. Uh, I still stay in touch with a lot of them to this day. But the the world of big New York City law firms, uh, it's tough. It's hellacious hours, incredible demands, great salary. I, I mean, I don't think anyone will dispute that, but it's your life. And, you know, by that point, my wife and I had been married and we moved to New York City to, so I could take this job. And it was hard on her. It was hard on me. You know, she was working from home. So she was spending just a lot of time at home by herself. And, you know, we were just generally 
unhappy with the circumstances surrounding the practice uh, at a large law firm. And beyond that, I had some moral issues with what we were working in service of. And it's tough for a lawyer, right? Because you, you recognize the fact that everyone does have to have access to representation. It's important. Um, it's kind of the foundation of our system. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean I have to want to play a part in helping who I see as kind of the worst actors in our economic and uh, justice system, which primarily I would define as banks. Um, and that's mostly who the clientele was for New York City, as you could imagine. And I wasn't super thrilled with that position. I, I really didn't like that I was spending the vast majority of my waking hours in service of banks. Would you say that there was a level of guilt associated with that or was it something else? Yeah, there's definitely some guilt. I think I think that's a fine way to phrase it because you know it's not in line with your values while you're doing it. And you know, there are justifications for it. Like I said, I do believe everyone deserves access to representation and quite frankly, a lot of the I have to I have to be careful with what I say when it comes to the practice of law because obviously there's very intense protections on specific things I've done. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the laws and regulations against banks are almost impossible to comply with. They're just so dense and so all-encompassing and really so demanding that they're kind of just there to assign liability. And I do think that's problematic as well. That's not the ideal system for, you know, regulation of these huge entities. Um, But the absence would probably be, you know, 10 times more horrifying, just letting banks do whatever they want unchecked. That would be super problematic as well. So Mm -hmm. I, I see why they need representation to kind of work their way through these regulations because they are incredibly intense and almost impossible to have full compliance with. But at the same time, again, I just didn't want to be the one doing it anymore. I didn't feel good about it. So, It sounds like kind of an impossible situation, just if I may say so, as a, as a third party listening to, to how you're, you're, you're saying it, right? Like someone's yeah. got to do it, but it doesn't make it good or acceptable or maybe value-wise aligned to what you personally believe in. So Right, right. I mean, and ultimately you have to you have to go home at night feeling good about what you do every day. I mean, I don't know how you can go through your day and, and, you know, not be working in furtherance of something that you care about at least a little bit. Like you, you have to be like, I accomplished something today. I moved something forward. I don't think you need to say this is the be all end all of my existence, but you have to say that in general, the world's probably a little bit better because of my participation in it. And I didn't feel like I was saying that at the end of the day. I'm thinking about how I see myself as I'm in my 30s and I have a career as well. Um, It must have been very tough to step away from that because in the back of my mind, at least, I'm always thinking about, hey, how many times can I reinvent myself, right? Like how many times can can I hit the reset button? And if I keep resetting, is it really the job that's the problem or is it me? You know, like I have this problem all the time. Uh, I'll be the first to to admit it to my wife as well. But did that ever come across? Uh, sorry if I'm interjecting my own thing into what you're saying, but uh, but it sounds like you had left that profession or, or are planning to. And so 
tell me about your thought process. Did it ever come across in your mind? Yeah, just every single day, <laughs> like literally every single day. I think about that, especially when I was leaving that job because the money was so good. And, you know, there's only so many people who get those opportunities and they're not distributed fairly. I don't think I was more deserving of that opportunity than a ton of other people, but I got it. And there was a level of guilt that I had from walking away from that opportunity that I know a lot of people fight for and, you know, want desperately. And here right. I am. Are just you like, being ungrateful, nah. right? <laughs> right, right. No, I feel that that crossed my mind all the time, all the time that came up for me and, and still does, you know, to this day, I think about it like, well, what if I had just stayed and, you know, toughed it out and, you know, I could have put my family in a very good financial position and, you know, only at the cost of my soul. What's the soul worth anyway? You know, they're kind of <laughs> ethereal. Who cares? But yeah, it, it comes up all the time. And when you're talking about the reset button, you know, I think I stand kind of on the precipice of this again now. So so maybe I should talk about, you know, I, I leave this big firm sure, and I left it to go work for a legal service provider for the poor. Essentially, I, I help impoverished people who are in foreclosure situations, and I, I help them try and keep their homes through legal means as well as various governmental and private programs that are out there to assist people facing foreclosures. Basically, it was kind of my effort at atonement as opposed to working for the bank. Now I was working against the bank. Um, as they try to take people's homes away, I was fighting on behalf of the people so they could keep their homes and the again the people i work with the the things they want to accomplish it's awe inspiring um i think the organization and all the attorneys care so much about their clients and these people who you know a lot of other people have kind of cast aside and, and don't care about there's there's a huge effort on getting them access to their legal representation that they deserve but there's also a tremendous amount of challenges that come with working with that segment of the population Maybe I'm just not strong enough for it. I don't know. But it, it's it's really hard for me to see these people in just tr super trying circumstances, super unfair circumstances. You know, like their entire lives have worked against them to put them in a position where they aren't able to take care of their finances and they don't understand the consequence of signing a, you know, 13% interest loan on their home. It, mm -hmm. it just, they were never put in a position to succeed. The game has been stacked against them from the very beginning. Um, and you kind of fight and fight and fight and do all you can for them. And a lot of times they're not able to capitalize on that fight because they don't have the tools to do so. They, they, they don't really understand the under, you know, the underworkings of the banking system and, and all the things that go into it. So it's just very trying and it, it you feel really good for your successes but the reality of the situation is when you're dealing with low income people is there's always going to be a lot more failures than successes. That's just the nature of the game. You know, there's no way around it. The system's stacked against them. You know, not to, uh, I don't want to get too political, but they're essentially faced with a government who doesn't care about them, who, mm -hmm. who doesn't want to put the effort in taking care of them. So they're just in incredibly difficult spots. And it's kind of the opposite problem where you come home at the end of the day. And despite all your efforts on behalf of people who really, really need those efforts, you just feel like you didn't accomplish anything. You didn't do anything. And there's kind of this weird situation. And this is, again, some, some more very specific inside baseball. 
But a lot of what funds the kind of foreclosure prevention programs, at least in New York State, is money that the banks had to pay in settlement of previous prosecutions. So where the banks, you know, had previous wrongdoings, they were fined billions of dollars, mostly from the the mortgage crisis. Mm-hmm. And New York State kind of set up funds and distributed this money across a bunch of places, and they were using it to help people keep their homes. Which you think about it, you know, your first instinct is, oh, that's a really nice usage of this money. I'm glad it's being reallocated to let people keep their homes and, you know, really protect the people as opposed to the banks. But then you stop for a second and you go one step further and you're realizing what's actually happening is that you're filtering the money that the banks paid in punishment. You're using it to repay loans to them that they would have otherwise never been able to collect on because these people are too poor to pay off these loans. So they're actually just getting the money back. It's being circulated back around to the banks in kind of like the guise of helping people who are facing foreclosure, which is... That's got to make you feel very cynical about it, right? Well, I think that's a cynical way to look at it because that kind of ignores the fact that there's still an individual in the midst of all this who would have otherwise lost their home and now gets to stay in their home. You know, you you can't ignore that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what you're doing by just tracing the money is you're forgetting about the impact on that right. one. Individual. These are people. They're not just the statistics. They're people. Right. Ex- that's exactly right. And that's kind of where the, the triumph comes from. But ultimately, when you think about it on a larger scale, I mean, you see the problem. You're, you're giving the banks their money back. You're making sure that they get paid on their loans that they otherwise would not have gotten paid on. So... Yeah, there's a lot of systemic problems. And if anything, I was frustrated by how little of an impact I've been having on those problems. And I think I just want to do something that makes people happier instead. Because I think fighting these systemic issues really leads to a lot of frustration. And they're bigger than one person. You know, it's it's about kind of changing the collective consciousness and maybe the best way for me to actually have an impact on collective consciousness is by talking about things like this. Maybe it's it's kind of crazy to say this, but maybe it's by doing episodes like the greatness episode and letting people know it's okay to kind of, you know, push yourself and to chase dreams and to inspire someone who can go forward and and help push the collective consciousness forward. I mean, it's kind of grandiose to think about a magic podcast having that kind of effect, but I feel better about what I do with magic content creation than I do as a lawyer for the poor, which is a strange thing to say, but it feels like I'm making more of a difference doing the former rather than the latter. I mean, does that sound crazy to you? Am I just overinflating the importance? It's not not crazy at all. I feel the same way when I'm doing content like this with you and other people, because it's simple math, right? I mean, like you can, you can ask one person to, if you ask one person to donate, a million dollars for a cause or you could impact a million people. Uh, I, I don't think, I don't know if you guys have a million listeners, just an analogy, right? No, not yet. To give a not dollar yet. each. I think it's probably, the latter is probably better, right? And it has a compounding effect. So I can understand where you're coming from and that the, the podcast or something like it is a very effective platform to get someone to maybe, maybe jog them into like, Hey, there's something here about, this topic of greatness that I can apply to my life and maybe they can go and help 10 more people. And that might be more rewarding 
ultimately then in terms of paying it forward, then you impacting one client or one bank or one person in your daily job. So I don't think it's crazy at all. Right, right. And, you know, one of the big sources of inspiration for me in that regard has been Jerry. And I know when Jerry was on with you last, you guys talked a lot about depression. And I think Jerry has kind of taken on that topic and has become a champion of discussion of that topic. And, you know, we see people either through our Discord or through um, Twitter who interact with him on that topic all the time. And you think about how many people he's reached with a message of self-care and self-help and, you know, not not allowing yourself to be stigmatized for mental issues. I don't know that if he were just, you know, if, if he discovers that's his pa- passion and he decides to become a therapist, I don't know that that has more impact on the world than him just being who he is as a magic personality and speaking about depression and speaking about those issues. I, I think he's probably more apt to have a bigger impact via his podcasting, via his content creation. It's a really powerful platform to have. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very, I mean, he's already got that platform. When I speak to, this is kind of kind of a tangent, but I've asked people, uh, professional players, why they keep doing it. And sometimes the answer is because I've already had a level of success here. And so I can reach more people with what I want to do, what I want to say, what I want to monetize on, than if they started over with a new game, right? I think there are certain people right. like uh, like Brian Kibler who've been very good at reinventing themselves and they got on they got in on the ground level with a new game or something. But for a lot of us, it's not it's not the case. And the thing that really strikes me as I listen to that content or that episode about greatness is that, and you're living it, I'm living it. Life is all about choices. It's all about what you want to focus on. You want to be a platinum level pro? Sure, you got to put in a lot of work. That means you're not going to be a lawyer. It means you're not going to be uh, somebody else or something else, right? It's all about what you you put in and, and what choices you make. So, right. Yeah. So what is next for you? I mean, there's obviously the podcast, but what are other things that are kind of top of mind in your life? That's a good question. So I think a lot of my responses are going to be pretty broad to that, but I'm cool with that because quite frankly, I don't, I don't know what's going to come next. As a family, we've decided we're going to let my wife kind of drive the narrative for a little while. Uh, she's very successful in what she does. And, you know, just by kind of virtue of opportunity, um, it's been my career driving a lot of the decisions, you know, moving to New York to lawyer and um, being back up here. So kind of letting her take the lead for a little while. It looks like we're going to be moving from the East Coast sometime soon. Uh, leader in the clubhouse is Seattle right now. But Denver is also in play, uh, you know, somewhere where there's appropriate snowboarding and some uh, some some good urban areas is where really where we'd like to go. So that's the location part of it. As far as what I'm going to do, I'm really into the content thing. I'm enjoying what I do so much. I would like to continue to expand what I'm doing. You know, does this mean launching an additional podcast, maybe starting to do some video content, some coaching is something that's really on the table for me. And I think it's something that's, you know, not super well done in the magic world right now. I think it can be much better than it currently is. I may get involved with that. And quite 
frankly, I want to be doing coverage for Magic, and I think I would be damn good at it. I don't know what's going to lead me down that road. I don't know who it will ultimately be with, but I think I can bring a lot to coverage of the game. Not only is just on-air personality, but I want to talk to people about coverage because I love Magic so much. I want it to be presented for what I know that it is, and that's the best game on the planet. And I think at times the presentation has lagged behind the quality of the game. And I want to play a part in helping address that lag and, you know, moving magic forward. I don't know what part that will be, but it's something I really want to explore. So, yeah, I, I just think, like, I'm at a place where I'm comfortable exploring some passions right now. And my passion right now is in mostly talking about magic, even more so than playing it. You know, I'm never going to be a week-to-week tournament grinder. You're not going to see me at every single SCG event. I just don't like travel all that much. I mean, I, I like traveling to different locales. I don't necessarily like traveling to different convention centers the way the way magic travel often pans out. So I think it's it's more apt that I am only taking on that burden if I'm talking about the game. The, the variance inherent in magic and, you know, that kind of soul-crushing aspect of I need this last pro point, but I just can't get it. That's not what I'm looking to travel around the country for. I want to travel around the country and, you know, be an ambassador for the game and, and you know, portray the game played at the highest level and point it out for just how special it actually is. And I'm exploring other options as far as teaching goes, too. Uh, like I said, I haven't loved being a lawyer, but I really love law school. And I think my experiences as a lawyer, um, despite the fact that kind of walked away a little frustrated with it all, I still think they translate into helping make other lawyers very good at their jobs. Um, And I think being involved at the law school level and maybe teaching a bit might be for me going forward. That's great. When it comes to the magic part and being involved in that, have you given some thought as to what your stepping stones would be? For example, the best way to influence change, would that be from within the machine or would that be as a as an independent person like i just mean in terms of actually working for wizards or specific organizations have you given any any thought into that no not specifically i I think that i think that sometimes presenting proof of change is the best way to encourage it so just doing it you know what i mean like just finding a spot to do some coverage and say look this is what magic can be and you know i i don't know where that opportunity is going to come from but if i have to i'll create it i mean i'll i'll find a way to present magic in new and novel ways that can bring people to the game because it shouldn't be hard this game is too good like this is the best game ever made i say it every time any gripe i ever have about magic any complaint about you know, the state of a metagame or the state of coverage or, you know, decisions around the players club, any complaint I have ever made comes from the strongest place of love possible because I know how good this game is. Like there's something monumentally special about magic. And for me, having been alive for 35 years now, nothing has come close to capturing my passions this way. I mean, I've been playing since basically late 94, 95-ish. And while magic has ebbed and flowed throughout my entire life, it's always been there. 
And I think it will always be there. I, I never see it going away. So for a game to have that kind of grasp on you, it has to be something intensely special, right? And it, it needs to be shown as that to a new generation of players. Um, I want tons of young people into the game. I want the game to last forever and to grow and to be here for as long as I'm here. So I'll, I'll find a way to play a part in that, be it through podcasting, coaching, um, ultimately covering magic tournaments, whatever it is, that's what I'm going to do going forward. This is one thing I've always heard you say on your podcast is that magic is amazing and magic is a great game. But I don't know if I, you've ever said on the podcast why it's a great game, great thing for you. I mean, you obviously believe in it so much, but have you ever verbalized why it is that it's the greatest game ever and what it's done for you? Can you just briefly, uh, <laughs> briefly tell me why? Yeah, that, that's a tough topic to be brief on. And, and as you may have noticed, brevity is not always my strong suit, but <laughs> I, will, I will try. There's kind of two parts to it. One is so ethereal as to be almost meaningless, but there's just this feel to magic. Everything feels right. Everything feels perfect to me. It It's like it intertwines with my soul. And I know that's like an almost nonsense statement that means nothing, but like some things, sometimes I feel experiences as magic experiences. Like some things to me will feel like spending my mana appropriately or lightning bolting a three power or a three toughness creature. Like those experiences happen throughout my day because the mechanics and the essence of magic gameplay is just like so beautiful and so perfect. And like I said, I, I recognize that that doesn't mean a whole lot, but it's something that I feel and have never really perfectly verbalized before. Um, someday I'll figure out exactly how to put it into words. But beyond that, there's also the fact that Magic is just a different game every single day of the week. Magic right now is not the same game that it's going to be tomorrow. Someone will have figured out something new or explored something new, um, or there'll be new cards released, or there'll be a new format like magic just changes all the time it's always interesting it's always fresh there's always something new to explore and it's like there's very few times where we come to record a podcast and we're like oh man what are we going to talk about today because there's so many layers to magic so many aspects of it you know both surface and subsurface there's the mental aspect of it there's the collection aspect of it you know which is something that we don't really get into but it, it means a lot to a lot of people there's the art aspect of it um the cosplay aspect of it it's just so many things to so many people and i think that is a large portion of why it has been and continues to be the best game ever created right it's very much putting you on the spot question and i know that there's a lot of nuance to to the answer but hey i figured i might as well ask <laughs> so yeah. no i'm happy to try i i don't know that i've ever perfectly verbalized it i've never like talked about it and been like yes finally i got it out um <laughs> but, but i'll keep trying and one day someone will be like yeah now i now i understand what he's talking about okay just to close the interview i have uh two final rapid fire questions to ask you let's do it if you could go back in time five years and tell yourself from five years ago something, what would you say to the younger Brian? Be a better person. I mean, it's kind of that simple. I just, I kind of liked being edgy for a long time. You know, I think a lot of us who kind of came up with the internet fell into that trap along the way. 
I mistook edginess for cleverness. And I didn't always have the best attitude around magic. You know, losing is, is not something that comes easy to me. It's something that I've had to work at doing gracefully. And even still to this day, sometimes it's hard. I, I hate to admit that. I want to be the most gracious loser all the time. But I've had blips on my radar over the past five years where I haven't been. For the most part, I think I am, but I'm, I'm not perfect. So I think that if I were able to go back five years and just be like, look, you know, think about how you're presenting yourself to people. Think about how your actions affect them. You know, think about how just a small thing like saying thanks for the games or, or, or not being salty in the aftermath of a bad loss will impact your opponent's enjoyment and really focus on those things and, and use those to push you to grow as a person. I hope that five years ago me would listen to that because, you know, five years ago there was starting to be this burgeoning sense of I want to make my community a better place. Um, Ten years ago, I probably would have punched myself in the face or something horrible. I mean, I was, I was just a crappy person ten years ago. But look, if you don't look back at yourself ten years ago and don't have at least some shame and, and some disappointment in who you were, then like you haven't grown as a person. And I embrace the fact that I wasn't the person I am now, and that I had a really, I had a lot of crappy aspects about my personality. And I hope that you know, 10 years from now, I listen to this interview and I'm like, wow, that guy was an idiot. I'm so glad I am not him anymore. And I now, you know, have evolved to be this person. Um, it's just this process of continuous growth that I would have liked to have pushed along a little bit faster going back five years. That's awesome. Next question. If you were talking to someone who was getting into content creation, whether magic or other for the first time, what advice would you give him or her? You have to believe in yourself because if you don't, no one else will either. If, if you leave yourself room to kind of be doubted um, and to fail, then you will be doubted and you will fail. And you have reason to believe in yourself too. You have something to say. If you are able to sit down and record an entire podcast or write an entire article or you know, just have a conversation with someone, you have something worth saying. It's, it's there. It's within you. And the world will be a better place for you having shared it with a bunch of people. Um, and believe that and embrace that. And go forward and make whatever content you want to make. Um, you know, you don't have to please everyone. But that content might mean a lot to just one person or to 10 people or maybe thousands of people. You never know. Um, so make it. Do it. And uh, be brave and proud of yourself. That's great advice. That's awesome. Brian, thank you so much for talking to me today. And uh, keep fighting the good fight. And uh, I wish you all the best in the next journey of your, the next part of your, your life journey that you and your wife are going to embark on. Thank you, James. I appreciate it. And I had a, a lot of fun talking with you. Thanks.